Today's reading is taken from 2 Samuel chapter 9. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba asked the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amuel, in Lodabar. So King David had brought him from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amuel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honour. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord, the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. Well, a very good morning to you. My name's Simon. I'm a member of the 9.45, soon to become 10 a.m. congregation here. And Peter's asked me to speak, and the title he's given me is God is Gracious, So We Don't Need to Prove Ourselves. And the passage that Pete thought fitted the theme best was 2 Samuel chapter 9. Give it half an hour, and you can decide whether it does fit the theme well or not. But if you could have 2 Samuel 9 open, that would be Great. Now, I'm a school teacher, and one of the joys of school teaching is that as well as doing your classroom work, you get to do duties at lunchtime and after school. And I was manning the lunch queue in the lower school hall. It was a new duty for me. I'd never done it before. The lower school students had never encountered me before. So you can imagine the comments I got. There I am, standing in the queue, and one little lad walks past and suddenly looks up and says, Wow! Sir, you're really tall. It was an epiphany moment for me. I'd never realized that before at all. And then comes the inevitable follow-up question. Sir, how tall are you? And there's a well-polished routine that follows this. I say, well, son, I'm 198 centimeters without my shoes on. Oh, he said there, what's that in like proper measurements? Ah, you mean imperial, I guess. 78 inches. You could see him kind of getting more and more confused as the lunch queue moved on. And then he finally said, no, sir, how many feet? Ah, that's easy, I've got two, a left and a right. We're looking this morning at someone who didn't have two functional feet, hence the lame joke. 
And his name is Mephibosheth. Bit of a tongue twister. You'll get used to it. Mephibosheth. He is famous in the Bible because he did not have use of his feet. In 2 Samuel chapter 4, I haven't got time to read the backstory in its entirety now. In 2 Samuel 4, he was tragically dropped as an infant. And both his feet were damaged permanently and he became lame, unable to use his feet or his legs. Now that's tragic for anybody. And this guy was not just your regular guy. He was the grandson of the king of Israel, then King Saul. King Saul was the first king of Israel, and he had a son, Jonathan, who was next in line to the throne, and Jonathan had a son, Mephibosheth, second in line to the throne, looking forward, perhaps, one day to being king. But Saul rebelled against God. Saul rejected God, and eventually God rejected Saul and his family. And David was chosen as the new king, not from the same family, from a completely different family, a man after God's own heart, chosen by God instead of Saul and his family. Events transpired. Saul and his son Jonathan died in battle, and David was anointed king over all Israel. And there is this episode here in chapter 9 where the new king and the one who would, in other circumstances, have been king come together. And there is a conversation between the one who could have been king and the one who was king. And it's recorded for us here in chapter 9. Before we look at the details, one thing we do need to appreciate is that David's rise to the throne was not primarily due to his amazing political or military skill. It was because of the kindness of God. God had chosen David. God had sent his, his prophet Samuel to go to David's house to, to anoint the new king. And David was the youngest son out in the field looking after the sheep, wasn't even presented to the prophet as a viable option. And only once all the brothers had been passed by, then did God say to Samuel, any more sons? Go and get that one from the field. He is the one I've chosen. Unlikely candidate. But he becomes king because of God's kindness to him. And God had so arranged things that David formed a deep friendship with Jonathan, Saul's son. Now, Jonathan would have realized that David was in you know, in line to be the next king. God had blessed him, God had chosen him, he'd been anointed, but Jonathan was also in line to be the next king. Now Saul said to Jonathan, you're mad. Why are you befriending this threat? Kill him, or let me kill him. Let's eradicate our opposition. But Jonathan doesn't do that. Jonathan shows kindness to David, realizes that God has blessed him, realizes the, the way things are going to be, and helps David to escape, and helps him to, to flee from Saul's murderous intent. And the two men make a covenant. Again, we haven't time to look in detail. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 20. Jonathan and David make a firm covenant promise. Jonathan will protect David's life from his father Saul, and David promises to show kindness to the household of Jonathan when he becomes king. Now, Saul and Jonathan have died. David ascends to the throne. And now he keeps his word. 
But the point is, David is on the throne because of the kindness of God and the kindness of Jonathan. So you see in verse 1, he says, Who can I show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? And then you see in verse 3, Who can I show the kindness of God to? David realizes he is in the position he is in because of grace that he has received. He's a humble guy at this point. He's rightfully grateful for grace, and so should we be. We read earlier Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says this, By grace are we saved. We are entered into a relationship with God, not because of our own skill or determination, but because of the grace and kindness of God. And we should appreciate that grace more and more. We should be stirred to greater ongoing gratitude. And I think the story of Mephibosheth will help us to do that, to appreciate God's grace, God's undeserved kindness. And there are three ways we're briefly going to look at where Mephibosheth receives grace from David and mirrors how we receive grace from God. And the first one is salvation. Obviously, salvation. Verse 1, he says, Is there anyone left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, it's a standard question for a new king. Is there anyone left from the old regime? Except it wouldn't be followed by, so I can show kindness to them. Normally, in every other instance, and there are some in the Bible as well as in ancient history, the new regime flushes out anything that's left from the old regime so they can eradicate it. One commentator calls it consolidation through liquidation. Brutal but common. You have to eradicate any potential threat from the old regime. You see it in politics today. You know, the, the new prime minister comes and clears out the cabinet members from, from the one they've just taken over from. You want to consolidate, get rid of the, the people that were loyal to the old regime. You've got a new team in now. So Mephibosheth, you can imagine, would be fearing for his life. As he hears word in verse 5, the king is after you. The king is looking for you. And he's been summoned to the king. King David had him brought. You can imagine, David would have sent off a delegation. Some soldiers, perhaps. The king wants you. Uh-oh, thinks Mephibosheth. Now, rather interestingly, there's another guy called Mephibosheth whose fate is somewhat different. We haven't, again, we haven't got time to turn there and look at it in detail, but in 2 Samuel 21, there is a, another son of Saul, also called Mephibosheth. Not very inventive with their sort of variety of names in those days, obviously, but Saul had a son called Mephibosheth. Saul had shown wickedness to a certain group of people, and later on, they avenged themselves by doing what? By taking the son of Saul, Mephibosheth, and having him executed as vengeance for the wickedness that Saul had shown them. So this Mephibosheth knew what was likely to come. He was seen as a threat. He was next in line to the throne, if you take the conventional way of thinking. He could have raised an army. He could have organized a coup. In his mind, he had to be gotten rid of. So you can imagine as he comes to David, he would be in some fear and trepidation. And then you get these words in verse 6. 
Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied, don't be afraid. Three small words, don't be afraid. They are some of the most important words in scripture. They are uttered at vital times in the New Testament as well. Don't be afraid. You do not need to fear because I'm going to show you grace. You are going to be saved, Mephibosheth. I'm not going to eradicate you. I'm not going to take your life. I'm not going to view you as a threat. I'm going to show you kindness. We do not need to fear. We do not need to fear if we are living in the grace of God. Because although we deserve God's judgment, we deserve death, we deserve to pay the penalty for our rebellion, and we are guilty. On the judgment day, if we are trusting in God and in his grace, we can stand before the throne of God and hear those words, don't be afraid. I will show you kindness and grace. And that is what the bread and wine behind us enable us to remember. Mephibosheth received salvation from David by grace. We receive salvation from God by grace. Secondly, Mephibosheth does not just get his life spared, he also, secondly, gets an inheritance. Verse 7, don't be afraid, said David, I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul. Now that's a big deal. David could have spared his life, ticked a box, satisfied his conscience, and then sent Mephibosheth on his way, grateful to be alive, but owning nothing. But he doesn't. He says, I will give you all the land that your grandfather, the king, owned. Now that is quite an offering. That is quite an inheritance that he's been given. David didn't have to do that. David was the king. He could have claimed it for himself. But it was another act of grace, another act of kindness. Because if Mephibosheth has land, Mephibosheth has a future. Mephibosheth's children have hope. But rather than living in dependency, rather than living in need and in poverty, they have the means to earn a good living and pass that on to future generations. Inheritance is important. Very important in the Old Testament. Lots of laws written about it and guidance. In the New Testament, inheritance is spoken of as a precious thing. Many believers in the New Testament would have been very poor and had no inheritance, no lands to, to receive from their, from their parents. But in the New Testament, we're told that we have the most incredible inheritance it's possible to have. A share in heaven. The kingdom of God. The new creation. It's an inheritance we do not deserve, but it comes to us by the grace of God. God wants to share what he has with us. And we don't deserve that. But not only does he show us grace in saving us, he shows us grace in blessing us with an inheritance. So therefore, we have hope. And thirdly, perhaps this is the most significant one, not only does Mephibosheth have his life saved, be given a remarkable inheritance, he also gets a relationship. Now again, David could have spared his life, 
could have given him the land and waved him goodbye. But he doesn't. Notice this in verse 7. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. They are stunning words that David utters. Mephibosheth, from now on, you will eat at my table. Remarkable to eat at the king's table. My late um, grandmother, her most prized possession was a framed invitation from the queen to have tea at Buckingham Palace. Incredible. And she dined out on it for the rest of her days, let me tell you. And there it was on the wall, and she would regale us with stories that kind of got more embellished every time as to what it was like to have tea once at the Queen's table. In other words, she went once. Mephibosheth was invited every day, every single day, to eat with the king at his table. Remarkable. Because that gave him access to David. The table was reserved for the king's family, the king's sons and daughters and close family. Mephibosheth was being adopted into David's own family and treated as his own son. Remarkable grace, remarkable access to the king, remarkable relationship that he's been blessed with by grace. And if you're a believer this morning, you have been given something very similar. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. We are seated with Jesus in the heavenly realms. We're sat at God's table. Literally, the table behind us, figuratively reminding us that we are a family around God's table. We have a relationship with the king of the universe by grace. When God the Father looks at Christ the Son, he sees you and I. When he looks at you and I, if we're believers, he sees Christ the Son. We are adopted, we are accepted, we have a relationship with God, and that is purely by grace. The grace of God in Christ Jesus. You see, true Christian faith is not just transactional. It's not like you go to a shop and you give your money and you receive something. True Christian faith is not just God giving us something. True Christian faith is relational. It is God accepting us into his family by his grace. Like Mephibosheth, we receive salvation, inheritance, and a relationship. I wonder what your reaction would be if you were Mephibosheth to that. Well, he's, verse 8, he's astounded. Mephibosheth bows down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? That's a funny phrase, that, isn't it? A dead dog. We went camping a couple of weeks ago in France and the campsite owners had a dog. Now, I don't really like dogs very much. I'm not a doggy type of guy. I don't have much time for dogs. But when I see one on a campsite, I think, ah, Mangy Mutt's going to woof all night and I'm not going to get any sleep. But there was no danger with this dog. This dog could barely utter a sound. This dog could also barely walk. So he wouldn't be chasing any burglars away. It was a crippled dog. Back legs didn't work. 
And to top it all off, it was also blind. This poor creature was the very definition of a dead dog, and I almost felt sorry for it. Almost. Useless as a dog, I'm sure it was much loved to the owners, couldn't bring themselves to put it out of its misery, but as far as I was concerned, it was useless. It was a dead dog. Mephibosheth realizes that he can give nothing to David. So David is lavishing this kindness on him, and Mephibosheth says, look, I can't give you anything back. I'm a dead dog. I'm useless to you. I'm a liability to you. I need constant care. I can't go anywhere without help. And David says, no, I'm not after anything in return. I just want to show you kindness. For God's sake, for Jonathan's sake. This idea of being a dead dog is very important to our understanding of sin and self. Ephesians 2 again says in verse 1, we are dead in our transgressions and sins. Dead. Not just compromised, but dead. There is a terminal problem. These days, people often, I see this in schools as well, need their egos kind of massaging, sustaining, need to be told constantly how good they are. Affirmation, lots of likes on social media, boost their self-esteem. Well, you can imagine if we turned up in the classroom with some sort of dead dog ideas and said, look, you're all useless, good for nothing. People don't like thinking of ourselves in that way. We don't like thinking of ourselves as dead in our trespasses and sins. But unless we appreciate the depth of our sin, we will not appreciate how amazing God's grace is. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Because there is a danger that we have too high a view of ourselves. We're respectable. Perhaps you're well-educated, well-paid. Perhaps you're generous. Well, that does not get you credit with God. You are still dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2 verse 8, By grace are we saved through faith, and even that is a gift of God, not of ourselves, lest any of us should boast. We cannot come to God with anything that gives us credit. We are all dead in trespasses and sins. It may not be a woke message. It may not be a popular message, but it is fundamental to understanding true Christian faith. We are dead in sin. C.S. Lewis has a memorable quote in his book, Mere Christianity, he says this. The Christian does not think that God will love us because we are good but that God will make us good because he loves us. He doesn't love us because he looks at us and thinks, well, they're good, they're worth loving, like some sort of divine dating app. God makes us good because he loves us. That is the grace of God. Tim Keller says this, if you want God's grace, all you need is need. All you need is nothing. But that kind of spiritual humility is hard to muster. We come to God saying, look at what I've done, or look at how much I've suffered. And God just wants us to look at him and be cleansed. All you need is need. Mephibosheth was given salvation, was given an inheritance, was given a relationship. And so have we, much more gloriously, with God. 
and it's all by his grace. And to appreciate it, all we need is to understand that we need. Come to God, accepting his grace. So the second half of uh, the title I was given says, because God is gracious, we don't need to prove ourselves. So what does that mean? And how does that work in the Christian life? The concept of proving yourself is, is all around us. You have to prove to your friends, don't you, that, that you're worthy of their time, that you're fun enough and you enrich their lives enough to justify being with. Or you have to prove to your employer that you're good enough to climb the career ladder. And perhaps that leads you to hide your vulnerability. There was an interview with a tennis player, Emma Raducanu, I'm sure you know of her. Shot to fame, came out of nowhere, won a major tournament, was hailed as the next best thing, the next global superstar, happened to be British. And then the wheels came off, the injuries came, the defeats happened, the setbacks, tumbling down the rankings, and so on. And she reflected and said this, I very much attach my self-worth to my achievements on the tennis court. If I lose a match, I will be very down, have a day of mourning, and literally stare at the wall. If I did that every time I lost a tennis match, I would never do anything else. She's under pressure to keep winning, to prove that that wasn't a fluke, to prove that she really is as good as she's made out to be. In another arena, away from the sporting arena, the politician, Michael Gove, reflected on his backstory because he was adopted as a baby aged four months. And he says this, when you're adopted, there is a sense of gratitude that someone has chosen you. So you feel an obligation to prove that they didn't make a mistake that their gamble on taking you into their life and the love and care they invested in you hasn't been wasted. You need to demonstrate that you're giving something back and justifying the risk they took. Now, we're all human, and we can relate in some way to Emma and Michael's kind of feelings. And it's very easy to apply that to our faith, but it would be wrong to do that, to think, well, God has saved me, Jesus has died for me, Therefore, I need to prove that he didn't waste his time. I need to prove that God's investment wasn't a duffer. I need to prove that, that I'm worth it. That the blood that Jesus spilt wasn't wasted on me. And we can understand that feeling. But in so doing, we completely undermine the point about grace. Grace is not performance related. Grace is not a job contract. Grace is being taken into God's family, seated at his table and shown unconditional love. You do not need to prove yourself or feel that you have to. Now let's be careful. When you're driving on a country road, there's a ditch on both sides of the road and it's possible here to veer into both ditches. On one side you can think, great, God loves me unconditionally, I can do what I like. I can sin, no problem, because I've got blanket forgiveness. Well, that would be abusing grace. That's not true Christianity. God forbid, says the Apostle Paul in Romans 6. We don't, we don't interpret grace that way at all. That's a big ditch. Let's avoid that one. But there's a ditch on the other side of the road. And that is, we try and live the Christian life, and our motivation is to prove to God that we really are a Christian. That it really was worth it 
And that's a dangerous ditch because it's good to live a Christian life. It's good to seek holiness. It's good to, to give of ourselves to others. It's good to follow the New Testament's commands. More than good, it's vital. But if our motivation is to prove ourselves, to justify ourselves, we are undermining the very grace that saved us in the first place. When my grandmother went for tea at the palace, she didn't know anybody there. And everyone there knew nobody else there. It was this large gathering of invited people who all represented companies who had shown excellence in their particular industry and that companies all chose one employee and my man had been there a long time and was very integral to that company so she was chosen. So the inevitable question when you mingle at the palace, I would imagine, is, well, what did you do to get here? Yeah. Justify your, uh, your presence around the Queen's table. Oh, I, I gave a million pounds to charity, or, you know, oh, I started this amazing thing for orphan children, or, well, oh, I oversaw this amazing company. And everyone is boasting about what got them there in the first place. Well, can you imagine Mephibosheth as he arrives at the King's table? And David's family sort of cast an eyebrow, oh, what brings you here, Mephibosheth? Well, he says, straightens his tie, tucks his shirt, and says, well, David thought some continuity planning would be a good idea, and I'd bring a lot to the table. Tick the diversity targets, you know? So um, I'm a very shrewd, shrewd operator. David just saw the opportunity and was blown away by my elevator pitch. No, of course not. Mephibosheth knew that when he went to the table, he was there purely by the grace of the king. It would be madness to convince others that he really deserved to be there. And when we come to the Lord's table, when we come to be God's family, we don't need to convince anyone that we're worthy of our place there. We're not. That's the point. We're there by grace. The application here is to those of us who are believers, who have accepted the grace of God, but sometimes we doubt. Sometimes we feel that we need to prove ourselves, and we don't. We need to rest in the grace of God. We need to enjoy being in his family, because that frees us up to live the Christian life in three very brief areas. Firstly, to aspire towards sinlessness. Now, we'll never get there in this life, but we can try and be more Christ-like with God's help. And that journey is, is a bit like when we go on a road trip. Not all journeys are smooth, and not all progress is linear, and it's the same in the Christian life. We were driving to the south of France, driving to the south of France in August on a Saturday. Inevitably, there's going to be some traffic. And you set up, as is the way these days, Google Maps on your phone, and there it was, and it said it would take six hours. Marvelous. Make sure the kids have got a story. Let's go, six hours. And you're driving along, and you are going forward, and the time, it says, it will take is getting bigger. Do you know that? And it's the most demoralizing feeling ever. But, ah, it will take six hours. And then the kids say, how long we got left? Are we there yet? How long we got left? Ah, five hours, 50. Ten minutes later, how long we got left? Six hours, 10. Doesn't make sense. And so often in the Christian life, it feels like that. We, we're going forward, but we feel like we're going backwards. As we stumble and we trip and we fall and we fail and we hit the roadblocks in life and we mess up. When God looks at our lives, he looks like a Google Maps journey in holiday time. There's some blue, but there's some red. 
there's some orange. And God doesn't look at us and tut and say, oh, that's not quick enough. Oh, that's too slow. God looks at us and God loves us. And God longs to pour his spirit into our lives to help us. And when we fail, he still loves us. And when we come to him afresh for help in our need, he gives us his grace. Second area, sacrifice. Now, don't get me wrong, sacrifice is good. We should sacrifice. It's a response to the grace of God, is to want to, to give of ourselves, our time and our resources. Sacrifice is good, but not if you're doing it to prove yourself. Mephibosheth had nothing to give to David that David couldn't have taken anyway. Nothing. So please don't think by being extra zealous that God will love you more. Please don't think that by spending extra time praying, you will earn more credit with God. Please spend extra time praying. Please don't go away thinking, I don't need to pray. No, you do. But don't think that by doing more prayer, God will love you more, or if you have a bad week and your prayer is a bit non-existent, that God is suddenly going to go cold on you. That's how often religion works, not true Christian faith. True Christian faith is based on grace. We, we are freed up to sacrifice because of grace. And the third area, and this is subtle, where we try to prove ourselves is in our service. Now again, Christian service is good. We should be considering how we can serve the Lord. It's a response to grace. But the devil uses good things to tempt us. And if we are not careful, our service can overtake our status. How often have you heard it said, I'm a missionary. I'm a full-time Christian worker. I'm defined by what I do for God. And in a sense, that's true, but it doesn't override your status as a child of God. I once met someone, got to know someone, who had devoted their whole life to active Christian service in many remarkable ways. And they'd reached that point where they were getting kind of into old age and really needed to step aside and let others take on the work. But they couldn't do it. And I remember the conversation I had with this person, and they said, what's the point in being alive if I can't do anything for God? I've been doing things my whole life. I need to be doing something. There's things to do. And it came from a good heart. Until one day, a sudden catastrophic health event, meant this person was laid low, bedridden, couldn't leave the house. Life suddenly changed completely. N service was no longer, in that sense, an option. And over those months, as I got to know this person better, they grew to realize that their primary identity was as a much-loved child of God, before it was as a missionary, as a minister. And that person ended their days with a newfound peace resting in the grace of God. Grace gives us freedom to become better people, to sacrifice meaningfully, to serve God in a greater cause. But don't lose sight of the grace of God and don't think you need to prove yourself. Because that's missing the point of grace. Now, talking of missing the point, I used to know someone who was also involved in, in mission work and would go off to developing countries where there's rampant poverty and would try and help Christian believers materially. They would take medicine, and they would take the means which these people could use to help themselves. And they went to one village, and they found a Christian family, lots of children, desperately poor, 
struggling to make ends meet. And they said, look, we're going to bless you by giving you two chickens. Right? Now, chickens lay eggs, and you can <coughs> use those eggs to feed your family. And, you know, if you're particularly shrewd, you can work out how to incubate some more chickens and then sell them or whatever to just to help you out as a family, to make a living, to grow a little business. It's a remarkable gift. And they were so grateful. A year later, they went back to the same village. And the family ran out to meet them and hugged them and said, thank you so much for those chickens you gave us last year. They were delicious. Can we have some more? They completely missed the point. They had a lovely Sunday roast from two fat chickens, but they'd missed the point of the gift. Grace equips us, Ephesians 2, for works of service. Grace frees us up so we don't need to prove ourselves. Grace frees us up so we can seek God's help to become better people. So we can serve God, we can give of ourselves, but not to prove ourselves to each other or to God simply as a response to being in his family in gratitude for grace. As a church, are we a community where God's people genuinely feel they can come and belong without having to prove themselves first? Are we open, are we accepting to anyone who wants to come and enjoy the grace of God? Because together as a family, we come to the Lord's table and we eat as family. And we remember what makes us family, the grace of God, the bread and the wine, the blood and the body of Jesus shed for us. Saved by his grace. Once we were enemies and now we're seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, useless, deserving of your judgment, rebellious. By your grace, you sent your son to die on the cross to take our place, to take our sin, to take the punishment we deserve so we can have a remarkable heavenly inheritance, so we can have a relationship with the king of the universe. Lord, we do not deserve that and we are overwhelmingly grateful. Once your enemy is now seated at your table, may gratitude rise up within us. And may we not be tempted to, to have to justify ourselves, to prove ourselves. May we rest in your grace, seek your forgiveness for the times where we go wrong, and enjoy the freedom you give us to live as your people, for now and evermore. For we ask it in your name. Amen.